0: The horn. Everything that we do every day, we want to be a champ. Get your mind
1: right and let's go. Do the little things. Win every day. It's so much we play so far. Everything with had attitude. Alabama. I don't give a shit who we're playing. I don't get in from
0: making play And make his ass play. That's our framework. That's our hello With the team. We're home. Richardson breaks free on the sideline. End zone. This is a mauling, folks—a mauling. Feel the tide,
1: honey badger. I- Hello and welcome to a playoff edition of the Alabama Football Podcast. You know, Friday's game against Notre Dame seems almost like old news. There's so many moving parts and topics that have taken place since then, and I get it. Immediately following our game, uh, I got caught up in the Clemson Ohio State game. I'd say for good reason, but uh, to, you know, more so than a, a typical non-Alabama game that caught my attention. And then, you know, certainly the Sark news on Saturday. Uh, really just was a deflator in some regards and certainly consumed all of the time and more that I'd allocated to work on the podcast on Saturday. So here we are Sunday uh, early afternoon and uh, let's jump into this. Let's do what we do. Uh, Let's take the circumstances that we have, talk about the game and uh, maybe spend a few minutes talking about some of the uh, off the field topics as well. So Alabama 31, Notre Dame 14. This might be a game that Vanilla would consider a little bit boring. But uh, I think there's some really, really interesting points uh, from this game that I'd like to spend some time with. And we'll kind of step through them like we do. Uh, It was a game where the big three kind of did big three things, but there were also kind of maybe some layered in surprises. You know, for example, we might be less surprised that Smitty had three touchdowns than to find out Najee had zero. Uh, We might be less surprised to find out that Najee had his longest run of the season, 53 yards, on the same play that he had his Edwin Moses-style hurdle, we might be less surprised in all of that than to find out that Mac Jones threw for only, air quote, only 297 yards. Uh, Interesting, he missed 300 because he caught his own batted pass for a loss of eight. But uh, nonetheless, he was sub 300 yards in a game that put him over 4,000 as Alabama's uh, only quarterback to ever do that. So that was that was pretty interesting. There were a couple other interesting points that I took from this game, and so I'll kind of step through these with you. Point number one or item number one, topic number one, uh, I thought Alabama, you know, in, in what might otherwise be a ho-hum kind of game, I thought Alabama was lethal when it needed to be. Uh, Alabama played 55 plays on the day offensively, had 24 first downs. Alabama – had its first third down on its third touchdown drive, uh, and that was a th- uh, that was a third and one that Matt converted. So I thought that was interesting. Four players were targeted across six plays before Smitty received his first touch. Uh, by that time, Forrestall had earned uh, <laughs> had earned 20, 20 yards on two plays. So I thought that was interesting. You know, Alabama for the game averaged. yards per play, which is impressive. However, in the first half, that number was almost double. So when Alabama wanted to be a a precise killer, they absolutely were. When they were ready to sort of draw back and take the game to the house and sort of get it over with, then they exhibited that persona as well. What's interesting also is that we saw that mostly with the starters in the game. What we've seen before, what we've seen through the season – is Alabama will play sort of full bore, and then as and then and then we rotate in the backups, and that's when it sort of looks like we're playing out the string. This is a game where the starters mostly played uh, the full contest, but you could see the dial back in effort, you could see the dial back uh, in aggression, and I thought that was uh, I thought that was interesting. So we wanted to to have our starters, our best players on the field, protect any sort of loss of ball. Um, you know turnovers, uh, but we wanted to be less aggressive, and so that's that's a dynamic that we haven't seen this season, and so I've, I found that a little bit interesting. Uh, Chris Owens steps in uh, steps in for Landon uh, Landon Dickerson at the center position. Almost did it, almost did it Landon Collins there, but st- uh, stepped in for Dickerson at the center position, and I thought he was exactly what we expected him to be. He was solid. He was exactly what Alabama needed, but he wasn't spectacular. And we shouldn't have expected him to be spectacular. Had, had you know, if he were spectacular, he would, he would be one of the starters, right? And that's not a knock. I thought he was very service serviceable. Gave us exactly uh, what we needed. There are a couple of times where Notre Dame, and I think they do have a stout defensive front, where they were to, able to uh, generate some pressure up the middle. That's you know, that's where we're going to be attacked. That is going to be the the weakness on the offensive line, if uh, so to speak. Uh, and in the face of that, I thought Owens acquitted himself very well. It was good to see Landon on site. He had just recently had a successful knee surgery. So it was great to see him back uh, sort of hooping it up on the sidelines and certainly on the stage there at the end. So that was, that was nice to see and uh, definitely pleased with Chris Owens and and how he performed. Uh, Second point is the selflessness of some of the stars, you know, team unity and character are, are certainly evident on this teams and on this team. And I think, you know, these are, Championship, you know, intangibles, uh, two plays that really, in my mind, exemplify that. Mechie blocking for Smitty's first touchdown run. These wide receivers, and we started to see it last year. We've seen it in the past. Uh, under Sabin, these wide receivers take blocking very, very seriously. Uh, and Mechie's blocking on sort of that wide receiver screen, the setup, uh, Smitty's first touchdown, was spectacular. And certainly not to be outdone, Smitty's blocking on Mechie's 40-yard run was uh, spectacular as well. It was also fun and entertaining, right? It was a v- it was a similar style play with the two receivers uh split uh you know split to the right uh, both plays and Smitty was almost waving and in fact he was in fact waving uh Mechie Hey follow me I'm gonna block for you and that's you know you take the slightest player on the team with that level of aggression to go out and block. Uh blocking's a want to uh, skill. And so Smitty definitely wanted to do that. Uh, Mechie didn't score on that touchdown. In fact, a couple of plays later, um, uh it was Smitty that scored, but I, 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 you know, without going too far down the rabbit hole, I would bet that Smitty would be willing to trade that, that, that touchdown for his blocking to have sprung uh, Mechie to score. I don't know if that's true, but it just, just seems like that's the kind of guy uh, he is. And they both, uh again, they both take blocking very, very seriously. Uh, a lot of pride in that. And so I thought uh, I, I thought that was really neat to see. Uh, and Smitty just all by himself demonstrated an incredible level of toughness. I know on Friday's game, Justin Fields gets all the, the rep for being the tough player, gutting it through injury. And as well he should with his play against Clemson. But Smitty was dinged up more than once, uh, slow getting up more than once. And he continued to go out on the field, even when the game was over, uh, catching punts. Running routes, blocking, all of these things. Even when he was dinged up, uh, at one point he take away his helmet. Let's uh, let's get him out of the game. But that's the competitor uh, that Smitty is. And again, there's a, a championship intangible that that we see there. Let's see what is this point four? Jalil breaks the matrix. That's that's sort of the note that I wrote there. He had two plays that we've seen before. And, you know, he had these plays uh, Notre Dame. And so I kind of – I don't want to get sort of too technical on these, but um, he had two plays, and and I swear we've seen these plays before. Uh, He had a 12-yard touchdown. Uh, It was sort of a right-to-left deep cross. This was the play immediately following uh, Najee's 53-yard run or the hurdle run, if you will. And, you know, just to kind of set it up for you, we had Smitty wide on the left. Uh, He runs across. We had uh, Jalil on the right. Uh, close to the line of scrimmage and they run a deep cross and at the time Notre Dame was playing a single high safety. And so as 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 Smitty runs across, the safeties, you know, kind of go with him. And that creates an open spot in the back of the the back left end zone uh, for Jalil. Uh interestingly enough, we're running a bunch set with three tight ends and then Ecuar pulls the other way right to left and that bring that pulls in the linebackers to again sort of create that separation. And in that back sort of quarter of the left uh, end zone, it's completely wide open. There's no one there, and it's just pitch and catch to Jalil. And we've seen that exact same play with the cross with Smitty, where Smitty takes uh, the receivers away. And uh, I don't know if that was uh, Auburn or LSU. I went to look the, the film on both of those, couldn't find it. But I was able to read about uh, both of those two plays, and they both read. Uh, that he caught the pass in the corner of the end zone. So I I wonder if we've not run that type of play three times. And I'm only just seeing it. uh, I'm only just sort of uh, catching it the second time. But he he caught that, and I was like, oh, we've seen that before. We've seen that play before. Uh, Similarly, Jaleel had a 15-yard catch, and this was sort of set up a little opposite. Uh, He he lined up on – it was a left-to-right cross, a little more shallow, but it was a left-to-right cross, and uh, he caught the ball, uh, Jalil did over the middle, uh, middle of the field with a DB just draped all over him. And it was one of those catches. How did the ball even get the, get in there with the DB on his back and sort of swatting at the ball? How did, how did he even catch that? Uh, but he reeled it in with the DB landed on top of him. We saw the exact same play uh, against Florida just uh, just a, a week or 10 days ago. Interestingly, in that game, that play was called uh, pass interference against the Notre Dame. Uh, against Notre Dame, it was not. Uh, but I found that interesting, exactly the same two plays. So again, you know, Jaleel breaks the matrix. Those are sort of the key points I wanted to, to step through on offense. Let's talk about uh, mini game ball on offense. And we're going to go uh, Chris Owens and uh, John Meche for reasons that we've already discussed. Hey, you all know I'm a serious Tide fan, but I'm also a whiskey guy. You know I like my brown waters. Apparently, Facebook does too, and we're all better for it. Recently, up popped an ad for Legends Drinkware glasses, and it was easily the coolest thing I'd seen in a while. But wow, now that I have these in my hands, I'm blown away. You know our Crimson Tide is rooted in tradition, class, and style. Somehow, the crew at Legends Drinkware distilled each of these elements into their glasses. No detail is overlooked. Lead-free, crystal glass, hand-blown in America. Even the packaging is top shelf. And the gym-like logo, well, it calls out to you. Roll Tide with every sip. All right, let's flip the field and talk defense. This was a game for Alabama's top squad that we might say was solid but not spectacular. And I give Notre Dame a lot of credit uh, for that. I think this was a game, I don't want to say that Notre Dame was not playing to win but they were playing to really stifle Alabama with both their offense and and you know they had less success with with their defense but with their offense they had a game plan that was i think specifically catered to Alabama of course game plans are catered to your opponent but this just seemed a little more custom served 58 of Notre Dame's 80 offensive plays so 73% of their plays was designed uh, for a quarterback run, a play to the uh, the running back. So either a run or pass to the running back or obviously a pass to the tight end. Lay Baked into that would be sacks, but there's only a couple of those. So 58 of 80 plays, 73% of those plays were designed quarterback runs, running back plays, pass or run, or tight end plays, uh, certainly passes. And so those are the positions... That Alabama struggles with a quarterback run is sort of an uncovered man and it's an extra man, so to speak. And then the running backs, the versatility with the running backs, the matchups, they can uh, issues they can create uh, along with the tight ends. So it was it was a really excellent game plan in that regard. When you couple the fact that Notre Dame specifically said we're not attacking Sertan, then you really limit what you can do, you can be effective, but you can't be dynamic. And it's not a game plan that's going to beat Alabama. I used, uh, I, was, I was thinking of this, I the analogy in my mind is like, it's, you know, you're carrying a revolver into a Rambo movie. Uh, I like a revolver, right? Uh, it can be effective, but you're going to be outmanned and you're going to be outgunned in a Rambo movie if that's, if that's what you got. And that's what this feels like. Uh, Notre Dame came in hot and heavy. For the quarterback, running back, tight end, specifically limiting themselves, uh, call it a third of the field, not attacking uh, Sertan, and so you really sort of neuter your own ability to be effective. And so, what I thought was interesting is to take a specific look. Uh, Notre Dame did have three drives where they were more effective. Two were touchdown drives, and one uh, one resulted in a missed field goal. And I thought those might be. And again, this will I'll kind of get a little in the weeds here, but. Looking at these three drives, understanding their game plan, uh, with how how they attacked and where they were effective, I thought I thought you know these were interesting to sort of look at. And so uh, Notre Dame's first touchdown drive was uh, late third, uh, re- late first quarter, early uh, second quarter. So sort of uh, across the timeline there, it was a 15 play drive for 75 yards, and so that's a successful drive by by any measure. 11 of the 15 plays were runs, and 13 of the 15 plays were to running backs. So think about that. There was one incomplete pass. Uh, otherwise, there were 14 plays that moved the ball forward. 11 were runs, and 13 were to running backs, uh, even if uh, they even passes to the running backs. And so I thought that was 100%. A design matchup, a scheme matchup, and they had success doing that. And we've seen teams have success doing that. And so I'll give Notre Dame a, a, a lot of credit for being able to execute that type of game plan, sustaining it for a, a full drive, uh, creating those uh, those matchups. The missed field goal, and this was uh, in the second quarter. So still, when the game was sort of active and live, it was an eight play for 56 yards. Now again it netted in a missed field goal, but this was an effective drive, eight for 56. There were two quarterback runs, two running back passes. So that's four of the eight. And then there was the, and I think there were a couple of incompletions. This drive again, midway through late second half, this was the, this play uh, included the first successful pass completion to a wide receiver. And so, Uh, I thought that was interesting. So again, their game plan was close underneath, create matchups with the running back and the tight end. And I think Alabama came back, uh, you say being even set at a half, we have some adjustments, we're going to come back in the second half. And I think we saw that because there, there really were no more effective drives until very, very late in the game. About five minutes left in the game. Notre Dame had their second touchdown drive. Again, the game's over. It's very late in the game, but it was a 14-play drive for 80 yards. I didn't break that one down because it had a a healthy, a much more balanced mix of run and pass. But I'll look at it and say, that's so late in the game. Five minutes left. The game's over. Uh, If they want to consume the clock and score a touchdown, I'd rather them not, but I get it. Uh, They did. It's also the drive, interestingly enough, Uh, It's the drive where Saban had his 15-yard penalty, um, apparently for coaching his team hard. Um, He's a Big 10 or Big 12 um, uh, officiating crew. I guess they're not used to seeing that uh, that type of penalty. And I think what really it boiled down to, uh, and I hear a lot of commentators talk about this, and I think it's true, in the empty, there's magic words, right? There's words that you can't say. To do a, you know, George Carlin uh, bit there. There's words you can't say. There's magic words that are going to draw the flag. And I think it was less about Saban being on the field. Uh, I think it was more about him saying the magic words. And when it's an empty stadium, you hear that a lot more. And uh, Saban talked about he was getting onto a linebacker who dropped the wrong way who was not even in the play. Uh, I thought that was interesting, but he probably said something along the, along the effect. And I'll edit myself, but he, he probably said something to the effect of whatever you doing there, what were what you thinking? And I think that's, I, I think that's what, uh, I think that's what drew the flag. So interesting that on, you know, late game situation, uh, Saban's still coaching the team uh hard. That's what draws the penalty. And it wasn't a, you know they had just converted the first down, so it didn't keep a drive alive in that regard. But it did move them 15 yards down the field. Uh Definitely, uh, that's going to help uh, sustain that drive. And so I thought it was interesting the way Notre Dame attacked, and it worked well most of the time. Uh, it's just not. It's just not a a game plan that's going to beat. Uh, it's it's not going to beat Alabama. I think the defense certainly it's not going to uh, sustain success against Alabama's defense, but. More importantly, it's not going to compete with the offense. You're not going to win a, a, a shootout with that type of uh, that type of play. Those three drive, drives, not you know, uh, in, uh, not consequently, 37 of Notre Dame's 80 plays were consumed in those three drives. So 46 percent of their plays were on those three drives, and 211 of their 375 uh, yards. Uh, or 50 per, uh, 56% of their yards were gained on those three drives as well. So, again, they were effective sort of in, in doses, in spells, but not enough to sustain. And then certainly a healthy chunk, 80, 80 of those yards came when the game was over. Uh, and at that point, you know, we had started to rotate some people in. But I do want to talk about a couple of individual performances, and I do want to talk about a couple of things that, that I noticed during the game that uh, that I found interesting. One of the things that was most interesting uh, to me, this may have been the most interesting thing for me the entire game, and it just consumed, uh, I was just consumed by it as I was watching the game because I had not heard anything about Malachi not playing. Uh, and so, uh, opening, uh, opening possession. Notre Dame receives, uh, elects to receive. And so first play of the game, I'm pausing and I'm counting my defensive backs. And, and I'll do that sometimes. I especially want to see how we're starting the game uh, in defensive backs. We've talked about this before. It's easier to see this live in the stadium than it is on TV. But sometimes you can just get the right view and you can see all the 11 and you can start to count them out. And so a couple of things sort of catch my eye is I see Brian Branch on the field, number 14. Typically, he's the key. Number 14's in. He plays the dime. And so we're playing a dime. And I was like, what? It? That doesn't look like a dime. So I rewound it a couple of times. And so I sp- I'd, I'd probably spent four or five minutes uh, assessing this even before the first play is, is run. Thank God for DVRs. And what's interesting is uh, I see a safety. It's like, we well, have a 20. What's What's going on? I don't see Malachi. We're not running. Count my DBs. We're, we're running a nickel. Not a dime. So why is Branch in there? The only one he would be in there for is Malachi. And why do we have a safety number 20 or or in the 20s? This seems wrong on sort of both counts. And sort of the short version is that Malachi was injured, uh, actually injured in the Florida game. And it was a type of injury that sort of the more he worked it, uh, the less, you you know, the worse it became. To, To me, that sounds like a hamstring, but I don't know that that's what it is. Um, and so he was dressed, probably could have played in an emergency situation, but we elected to rest him uh, or the coaching staff did. And so uh, what we did is we moved Branch from the, uh, you know, from the from the money to the star. And so and that made me made sense. Uh, just I spent you know most of the game. What's up with Malachi? What's up with Malachi? And then we also rotated. And these were independent. Uh, I was trying to sort of weave how how are these potentially connected? But I, I think I land on them, them being independent moves. And so Branch came in for Malachi. understand that situation. And then because Notre Dame was going to play, you know, 12, uh, 13 formations, a lot of tight ends. And again, we see their, their sort of their game plan. That We rotated out Daniel Wright for DeMarco Hellams. He's a beefier, uh, strong safety. He goes about 210. And so we brought in a beefier, strong safety. And to me, I think that's that's phenomenal that we even have the depth and ability to do that type of rotation. We've seen in, in this also, tip of the cap to the coaching staff, we've also seen this, and you've heard us talk about it on the podcast for most of the season, that there's always an inflection point in the third quarter where Daniel Wright starts at one of the safeties and then we just switch and we rotate him out and bring in DeMarco Helms, And we always say, watch for when 29 comes in because he's going to light somebody up. And so, and we've seen that, like I said, you know, probably the last two thirds uh, of the season, three quarters of the, of the season, we've seen that as the rotation. And so it's interesting. We get to this point in the season and we say, "Huh, we're going to play a team that runs a lot of thirteen formations, a lot of a lot of tight ends. So why don't we take advantage of bringing in the thumper? Why don't we take advantage of bringing in the the bigger safety and just play him more of the game? And he's played a lot, and he's effective when he does play, and he's comfortable out on the field. So we can do that without much of a drop off, and in fact, and it's an it's an enhancement to the defense." given his skill set and capability relative to what we're facing. There's a there's a genius in that. There's it's just incredible. And what that allowed to allowed us to do is when we did go to dime, and we didn't do that a whole lot, but when we did go to dime, we we were able to bring in Daniel Wright in that position without having to bring Malachi in. And there was a point in the game, it seemed like, where we did rotate uh Daniel Wright in for Hellums much in the way that we were doing the opposite during the season, and I just just was enraptured by that, watching that play out. Helms, for his part, played an incredible game. He had uh, he was in on uh, twelve tackles, six were solo, uh, and he actually had a sack, which is I think pulling something out of the bag that uh, that no one would be prepared for. Who's this bigger safety? A backup safety is what people are going to say or what people are going to think because they're not sort of tracking with with necessarily what we're doing as close as, as we are. And so who's this backup safety? Well maybe we can attack him and certainly he's not going to come in on a blitz. And Helm, I think uh disabused everyone of those things. So I thought that was uh that was phenomenal to see uh and I think Helm's played uh very very well Let's see, looking at my list. So Branch played for uh, Malachi, just like we've said. I thought he was effective, not as effective as Malachi because he doesn't have as many reps at that position, but I thought he played very, very well, uh, looked smooth, looked comfortable. And I think that's a credit to the play that he's been getting at, at the dime or at the money. Uh, he, had, he was in on three tackles, two were so, solo. He also had a pass deflection. Uh, Christian Harris, I thought it looked good. He continues to, uh, to be one of our better linebackers. It's hard to argue with Will Anderson uh, either. But uh, Christian Harris had an interception, and I was so – I felt like a proud papa. I was so pleased to see him in coverage. We spent several minutes earlier in the season uh, – I want to say it was a Texas A&M game – where we were not happy with how he played the coverage. And, but we weren't willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We said, let's let him line up and run that again because he'll play it better next time. And to see him play a very, very similar play, uh, stick with the receiver, play the ball, turn around, make the interception. Uh, that was, I was very, very pleased. Uh, with that. And as Alabama fans, we should all be pleased. Uh, huge play, love the turnover, get the ball back, all of that great. But just the the comparison of seeing Harris in coverage earlier in the season, giving up a touchdown play here to very similar action, uh, looked like almost a wheel route to the right, down the sideline. You line them up, they're pretty darn similar. Uh, and he was able to, to maintain uh, position and uh, come up with the interception, make the play on the ball was phenomenal. He also rotated out early and Jalen Moody came in. And I want to talk about Moody. He was in on three tackles, had two. Uh, he seemed much more active than that. But this is another subtle point that I think is is really, really impressive. And it speaks to the coaching staff, their readiness to let's play this game, but let's get out of this game. Saban, I think, had one of the best quotes. Uh, he said, we didn't come here to end here. And so he knew that we were playing part one of part two. And so it wasn't throw everything at Notre Dame to try to win this game. He very much knew, and it almost reminds me of Beebs a little bit, uh, uh, Stallings. He said, you know, Stallings would say, I need 18 points to win this game. They can't score 18. My defense can stop them. And so he'd score 19 points and it closed down the offense. And it was, in some regards, it was similar. Saman said, I need X to win this game. And then we're going to dial it back. And we saw that. Uh, we saw that. We, we saw that on offense and we saw it on defense. And we saw it on defense in some of the the, the specific play personnel, uh, player personnel, DeMarco Hellums playing uh, in in for right. He might not be as dynamic as right, but we knew the matchup favored Hellums, and we felt comfortable doing that. That was spectacular. The fact that we got to the point where Christian Harris, we said he can play, but... Let's let's put him on the shelf because he is playing injured. Uh, He is playing hurt from the Arkansas game, so he's still recovering from that. Let's bring in Jalen Moody, who we know is effective, not as good of a player, but we know he's effective, and let's bring him him in earlier than we otherwise uh, otherwise might. So I like sort of the game within the game. I like the preservation of players, the forward-looking. We don't always see that with Saban. His mentality has always been if you're healthy to play, you play. And here we see a little bit of shift, a little bit of shift of that, even the preservation of Malachi. Malachi could have played, but we've got bigger fish to fry than this game. So let's do what we've got to do to win this game. Let's get in, let's get out. It's a business trip. Now let's reassess what we've got. We can go balls to the wall next week. We can throw everything at uh, Ohio State next week. But let's do what we've got to do to get out of this game. And I think we saw that. Uh, in multiple sort of occasions and instances, which make that, to me, that's very compelling. It's very interesting because we don't see Saban do that a whole lot. So I really enjoyed uh, that sort of dynamic. It really shows you a little bit about the coaching staff's mentality for the season and certainly uh, for this game. Uh, Who else we want to talk about? We want to mention uh, Will Anderson, six tackles. He looks better and better and better every week. If you could chart him, uh, just his play, uh, and I'm curious how the, how the coaching staff sort of grade, grade out uh, the players. I would imagine he would be going in the direction that you want your stocks to go, that he would be trending, uh, trending upward. Uh, Christian Barmore, uh, very, very similar. I know he started the season with uh, sort of a sprained knee and he's continued to sort of progress and develop and elevate his game. He was in on five tackles, four were solo, low, uh, including a sack. He's always fun to to watch when he gets a sack is sort of dance routine. Uh, so I enjoy uh bar more. I know the fans do as well. so that was fun to see. I thought Dylan Moses maybe had one of his better games. Uh, he was in on six tackles. He had uh, two uh, solo. And of course that he released sort of a, uh, an Instagram talking about how he, how he's played all season uh, injured uh, all season hurt. Uh, some of that probably mental as well as physical because he's playing. Uh, he's, He's come back from a knee injury and I know that he's taken a lot of heat from Alabama fans for not playing up to his prior standard. And I hate to see sort of that, that Bama on Bama crime, so to speak. Um, I hate to see that, especially for a player like Dylan Moses, who's clearly coming back from injury. I expect good things from him in his football future. I do think that he would do well to come back and play another season Uh, At Alabama, but we'll see how that plays out. But uh, uh, we're always big fans of of Dylan Moses and and want to see him recovered and want to see him uh, successful. And uh, again, would like to see him next year come back and just prove all the doubters wrong uh, and be a first round draft pick after next season. Whereas this year he might be fourth or fifth uh, round at best. Uh, Patrick Sertan, I mean, he played a phenomenal game and didn't really really do anything. Uh, You know, Notre Dame specifically said we're not attacking that dude. And uh, he he had a a very good game. He was in on some tackles and some run support. Uh, very physical, and uh, it was great to see uh, Patrick Sertan. I thought overall the defense played well. Uh, I thought they left some money on the table, but uh, I thought the defense played very very well. And again, they sort of represented the mentality that we didn't come here to end here, and so we're we're doing we're doing what we need to do to win this game. But we are, but but we will leave a little bit of money on this table so we don't risk not having what we need available for the next game. I really like seeing that. I know I've kind of uh, harped on that a little bit, but it's not something we typically see from a Saban coach team, and it was interesting to see that uh, this week. Many game balls on defense, I've talked about all of them already. Uh, I'm going to give three, but all under the sort of the same housing, Brian Branch, Jalen Moody, and Daniel Wright, all for playing sort of out of their core position. Uh, are playing something extra in addition to sort of their core uh, position. They all r- rotated in. I guess less moody, but, you know, his position typically is on the, on, on the bench. Uh, and so he definitely rotated in and played. So mini game ball to all of those guys for their play. Uh, and, again, a little bit different circumstances uh, this game. So let's hop to uh, special teams. You can't talk special teams without acknowledging uh, Josh Job uh, setting the tone on the opening kickoff. He was rivaling Mechie, I guess, for hard hit uh, of the season. But uh, he knocked the heck out of the Notre Dame uh, return guy, uh, forced a fumble. Notre Dame recovered it, uh, but it was recovered at the eight. And what's interesting is the the commentators, they they spoke less about it being Josh Joe on the opening kickoff. And then they proceeded to, to spend almost the whole rest of the game just in wonder, in awe, that Alabama – would send Josh Job and Patrick Sertan as their gunners on all of their special teams. It's almost as if they forgot the opening kickoff uh, where Josh Job, I thought made it very clear why, why we do this and was very effective in, in that one play. And again, Notre Dame came out to be aggressive and I think <laughs> discretion is the better part of valor. They wanted to play hard. They wanted to be aggressive, but I think you can also play smart and this plays right into what I say, right? They'll give you the ball in the 25. And so Notre Dame, uh, typically if you win the toss, uh, you elect to the second half. They said, no, we want the ball. We're gonna come out and we're gonna, we're gonna, you know, sort of we're gonna set the tone here. And in the opening kickoff, they would have been much better off to take the ball at the 25 and then run from their play script. Instead, they put themselves in a hole getting the ball at the eight, not only just getting the slobber knock out of them. But starting on the eight, losing quite a number of yards uh, on that play. And I think that limits the play call. The plays that you can run at the eight are different than the plays that you can run at the 25. And uh, I think they came out uh, overly aggressive, lost some of their football smarts there. And uh, Josh Job certainly made him pay for it. So uh, good play by Josh there. Let's see. Jalil, uh, we talk about him breaking the matrix, but uh, he's breaking my mind with his continue. Uh, continuing to uh, return kicks. Uh, he had one return for 16 yards. It was two to the 16, so I count that as a loss of nine. I don't understand. Look, I like his hands back there. I'm not arguing that point, but the returns, I don't know. Just fair catch it. Take the ball at the 25. Again, that's my motto there. If it's a game where you need to do something, I'm setting up my next point when we talk about punt returns. If it's a game where you need to do something, then – Put the guy back there that can do it, and by all means, do it. Against Clemson a couple years ago, we needed Kenyon Drake to return that ball, and he did. But in other points in the game, we didn't need it, or we didn't think we needed it. And so, you you, you know, you keep your powder dry On the punt returns, Smitty had one for 20, and it's interesting. On punt returns, they don't count uh, fair catches. Which I wish they did because then you get to see more of a fullness uh, rotation of, of who's back there. I, I lamented uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, Patrick Sertan fielded a punt. And why is there no sort of record of that? What's well, it's because he fair, he fair caught it. And I, I guess I know that now uh, because he, uh, Patrick Sertan, fielded a punt against Notre Dame. And again, he he fair caught it. He didn't, he didn't return it. So it didn't really show up in the stat package. And here's what's interesting to me. Slade Bolden played in the game. He played wide receiver. We've seen Slade Bolden much less healthy go out to field punts than, than he was in the Notre Dame game. And for my money, I did not see Slade line up and in, in field a punt. Now, maybe he did, but I, I, don't, I don't specifically recall it. I, I recall us I going from Smitty to Patrick Sertan. Now, here's something that I think is interesting. When you think about dynamic athleticism, on this Alabama team, you're going to rate both Smitty and Patrick Sertan ahead of where you would rate Slade. Slade is talented. He's shifty. I think he can do a lot of things offensively, but I don't know that he's a world beater athletically. I mean, he is compared to me, but compared to the other athletes on the field. And so why would we put Patrick Sertan back there returning a punt? Patrick Sertan is pretty damn athletic. Uh, obviously, a cornerback tells you about his athleticism, but we've seen him return you know pick sixes too, right? And so I think there's an element of our coaching staff that says, let's give Sertan a rep here, just in case. Just in case something happens with Smitty, just in case we need to put a dynamic athlete returning a punt in next week's game against Ohio State. Now hopefully we, you know, hopefully Smitty doesn't get hurt and hopefully we're not at a at a point where we need a punt return to sort of shift the momentum. But I think we did something here. I think we did something there. Like we sort of hid one earlier in the season. Why'd you have him back there? Well, you know, injury situation. And I think that carried over. If we could if we could know the unknowable, I bet he's been fielding them in in practice. Obviously, you know I mean, I guess obviously he has or who wouldn't be out there in the game, but I think there's an intentionality behind it. And so we gave Patrick Sertan, uh, probably one of the better athletes on the team playing corner, gave him a punt in live fire just to get sort of used to the ball, get used to the lights, get used to fielding the punt just in case we need a Kenyon Drake return and Smitty is not available. That's just my two cents there, but just, I, I saw that and I said, Hmm, that's, that's pretty damn interesting. What, what can we make of that? And so right or wrong, that's, uh, those are, those are the tea leaves or at least how I read them. Will Reichert, uh, one field goal for 41 yards, four for four on extra points. That's where I feel like I still need to whisper this, maybe whisper it more than I have, but he hasn't missed one. all season. And Charlie Scott, I am falling in love with one Charlie Scott. He uh, had three punts on the day, average forty-two. Uh, his long was forty-six. So it seems like he's getting some, he's adding some distance to his kicks versus what he had earlier in the season. He also had two of his kicks down, down inside the twenty, which again I think uh, that shows he's he's still getting the uh, the height, uh, the hang time, but he's adding some distance to the back end, and and I think that's interesting to see. You know, Charlie Scott. There's a couple of interesting uh, things about Charlie Scott. Uh, Charlie Scott is is JK's brother and so that's kind of that's kind of cool. He's also a graduate transfer from the Air Force Academy. Now this is a question I don't under, I, that I don't know. There's some thought hey, you know, Charlie Scott, he's a senior grad transfer, but with the COVID rules he could potentially come back. And he's playing so well that we would like him to come back. 100% agree with that. What's interesting to me is that he's not just transferring from, you know, Temple or Syracuse or somewhere, he's transferring from the Air Force Academy, so a military academy. And typically, I, I w- typically I was thinking there's there's a service commitment that comes with that scholarship. Maybe it's different for athletics. I don't know, but I think there is. And so I don't know if if he, they've deferred his service commitment for him to play out his career. Uh, sometimes they'll do that uh, for players that want to uh, have an opportunity in the NFL. And so maybe. Is a graduate transfer? Yeah, you can go kick somewhere else. Uh, continue education, and we're going to defer your service commitment. I don't know what that looks like. Would they defer it another year? I don't. I don't know any of that. But uh, that's sort of an interesting thing. And I'm not seeing any sort of articles or, or speculation on that. I've kind of wondered the Air Force angle all season. I just haven't brought it up. But now, with when, when we're in this inflection point where he's punting really, really well, and we might want him to come back. Um, it sort of begs the question in my mind. So there you go. So that's my special team sort of rundown. Next. Well, Ohio State is next in the national championship game. And I just want to take a deep breath, right? And as Alabama fans, we all should. We have, you know, non-10 days, whatever it is, uh, when you're listening to this before the championship game. And we should just take a deep breath and, and, just, and just revel in the excitement that we're going to play in this. Uh, I, one of my favorite, and this was years ago, one of my favorite times of, of, of the year where, you know, after the SC, this is back in the BCS days and in the BCS days, we would know that we were in the finals. We would know that we're in the championship game, but we would know that in early December, and we would have almost a month to just sort of revel in the fact that we're going to play for the national title. And it, it's almost a, it's almost like pressing pause on the football season. We know that we're awesome. We know they're going to play for the national title. Let's just bask in that in that time. And in the BCS era, we were almost allowed to do that, right? And so what we need to do is with some intentionality over this next week, just enjoy the hell that we're going to play in the national title game. Uh and so let's just let's just do that for a minute. Now, you know, press balls and come back, I guess. But uh, definitely let's do that over the course of this next week. Uh, When we think about suiting up and playing Ohio State, I think we need to buckle up. Uh, This is a game that may not be over until it's over. It's going to be more like the Florida game than than anything uh, that we've seen this season. Although I think Ohio State's probably less explosive than that version of Florida. There are less explosive versions of Florida, but that day – uh, and at points during the season, they've been quite explosive. I don't think Ohio State's quite that, but it's going to look more like that than most of our other games. You know, some of the key matchups uh, that, that we're going to see, uh, wide receiver, uh, you know, I, I kind of like some of the weaponry that Ohio State has. Uh, Chris Alave, uh wide receiver, he missed the Northwestern game. And so you think about, man, they didn't look so good in that game. It could be that they were missing their best receiver. Uh, uh, Garrett Wilson, wide receiver, true freshman. I think he has a lot of talent. I don't know that he's a number one yet. He's just a hell of a talented number two. And so I think they missed him uh, against Northwestern with uh, – they missed Alave against Northwestern. Uh, Trey Sermon is a running back transfer from Oklahoma. I don't I don't recall him being so good as he has the last couple of weeks uh, at, at Oklahoma, but uh, I think he's a nice running back. And then Justin Fields I think can pull the trigger – Um, going to end up being one of the better quarterbacks that we've seen this season, although you could argue he's not near, near the top, but he had a lights out day uh, against Clemson and give him a lot of credit for that. I saw someone post and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting, you know, who it was, but uh, you typically don't play two Super Bowls in a season. A team doesn't. And uh, you know, Iowa state had a lot of angst and worked up aggression for Clemson. And so, so, you know, you might reason, can they recycle that can they regenerate that you know on such a short turnaround I don't know the answer to that question I asked the very same question uh, last year with lSU that that we were their mountain that we were their Super Bowl and so when they knocked us off in Tuscaloosa would they be able to regroup to finish the SEC championship and to finish the uh, the national uh, the playoffs and the national uh, title game i I wondered that. Uh, I think that they had the benefit, LSU did, they had the benefit of, you know, sort of playing out the chain. After they played us uh, in November, I look at their schedule, but I don't know that they had really anyone left until the SEC uh, championship. So they had a couple of weeks sort of catch their breath uh, before they went into the SEC championship. uh, And then a couple more weeks again before they went into the playoffs. This Ohio State team is a quick turnaround and so their uh, elation is sort of achieving their mountaintop goal. They have a quicker turnaround uh, to play Alabama, so we'll see. I'm not taking anything away from them, and where we sit right now, uh, I would view this as a 45 to 38 uh, style game. I think Alabama wins. I think it's tight, and it's not over uh, until it's over. All right, so I think we've got an extra topic that we want to spend uh, some time with. We've got this uh, all of this business about sark and the offensive coordinator and so um <laughs> as i'm as i'm prone to do and I, and i'm laughing because i did it on this show and i break things down into steps and i think it through kind of in steps and so i've got six steps that uh, it's almost like a a, a program right uh, i got a six-step program for thinking about the uh, sark leaving and uh, alabama needing to replace its offensive coordinator so the first thought is, hey, go ahead and let it out. Damn it. My first thought is, the first step is, damn it. Allow yourself the damn it moment. Ugh, we don't want him to leave. He's leaving. Damn it. All right. Second step is our goal is the playoffs. And I think we're good for the playoffs. Sark has, has said that, hey, I've committed to Saban, that I'm, I'm here for the playoffs. And so we should, you know, damn it. But okay. that That really is that one and two. Uh, I think Sark is going to be more invested in helping the team for these playoffs than is almost humanly possible. Think about when he took over for Lane. We lost that game to Clemson. He took some heat for that. Sark did. And then he immediately left, in which case he took a lot more heat for that. And so he knows that is is in his resume. He knows that that is – the side eye he might be getting from the Alabama fan base. And I think is a, a, you know, I don't know him personally, although I've seen him in a restaurant. Uh, (laughs) I don't know him uh, him personally, but I just think the resolve and character is going to, is going to rise to the occasion. I know he's had some issues in his past. We all have, I think his resolve, his character are going to shine. And that uh, from a preparation standpoint, for this game, for the championship game, we're going to get it. We're not going to lose it uh, uh, from Sark. And so, I think we should, you know, have the damn it moment, but have the the okay because uh, I think we're good for the playoffs. Uh, three. Um, my prediction on the replacing, uh, naming the new uh, offensive coordinator, it won't happen until after the championship game. It uh, championship game is Monday, uh, so it'll be late Monday. Uh, it might be Tuesday. My prediction is Wednesday, uh, that the Wednesday after the championship. So would that be the 13th? My prediction is that an offensive coordinator is named, not interview or here's all the list of guys. The new offensive coordinator will be named Wednesday after the championship. That's my prediction. I could be way wrong on that, but uh, that's where I would sort of plant my flag on that one. Point four, Saban. Saban knows who he wants. And. It's likely not someone, and I've got some lists of names. We're going to talk about lists of names, but it likely is not someone on on our lists and certainly not someone at the top of of anyone's list. Uh, Saban knows who he wants. It's likely not someone uh, on all the lists. Um, Five, not only does Saban know who he wants, Saban knows what he wants in an offensive coordinator. Those are two different things. Who is the name? What is sort of the, the caliber, uh, and not even the caliber, but so the moldability, the, the persona, uh, the personality uh, of the individual. And this might be the most key point of, of all of it. Saban knows what he wants. He's not looking for a flavor of the month offensive coordinator. He's not looking for a, an, an offensive coordinator who is his own brand. He's not looking for an offensive coordinator to come in and reinvent the Alabama offense. Saban wants a competent, capable offensive coordinator, capable of bringing in a wrinkle, a dynamic, but also capable of running and and willing to run the Alabama offense as it is constructed uh, today. That's a key point. So the glamour boy, so to speak, offensive coordinators, Likely don't make the cut. Doesn't mean they're bad offensive coordinators. It just means it's not what we're shopping for. We're shopping for a sensible family sedan with the power to merge on the interstate, right? We're not shopping for a Corvette, uh, so we need to think about it. And so that's what that's what Shea, uh, Saban is is shopping for. And then the sixth point, and then we'll look at all the names because how looking at names is fun. Uh, but the sixth point, but it's, it's these sort of foundational points. That are more important than a list of names. Uh, So my sixth foundational point is that with the talent on the roster and the success rate of recent former Alabama offensive coordinators, there's going to be a line down to Birmingham of offensive candidates, offensive coordinator candidates that want this job. Think about, you know, think about the last couple offensive coordinators. Uh, Brian Dayball, offensive coordinator in the NFL, is going to get a shot in an NFL head coach, and his time under Saban, you know, we'll, he'll get we'll get some mileage out of that. Loxley is a head uh, is a head coach at Maryland. Lane Kiffin's a head coach at Ole Miss, and Sark, uh, two years removed from being fired uh, for the Falcons, with the baggage in his, his history is about to be, uh, or is now, the head coach at Texas and about to make bank. And so think about, you know, I'm going to go be offensive coordinator in a program that Saban just brings you all the talent that you could ever want. He brings you a feast of talent. And if you can keep the offense between the rails, you're going to have an opportunity at an incredible job, a job opportunity that may include – Alabama itself. We talk about Sark, a coach in in waiting. Here's a footnote on that. If Sark had elected to stay after being offered, that might have been a sign that Saban was about to leave. If Sark says, oh, well, I'm going to go take the Texas job, then that might be an indication that Saban has no plans or it's a three or four year plan. And Sark says, I'm not waiting that long. So I think there's a nugget. I think there's a hidden sort of truth there. But in terms of uh, offensive coordinator candidates, it's almost a can't fail situation. Look at the talent that's on the roster, the talent that's coming in with these recruiting classes, come in, keep the ship between the rails, and you too can be a millionaire head coach somewhere. So those are are sort of the six points that uh, uh, allow yourself a dammit moment, acknowledge that we're good for the playoffs, likely no announcement until after the championship game. So don't Hit refresh every two minutes, looking for a name. Saban knows who he wants. Saban knows what he wants, and the talent—you know—he'll have the pick of the litter. The kids say that anymore? I don't know. Pick of the litter—it's a great saying—and Saban has it. All right. So, I'm going to break my own rules a little bit and say I've got—and you know—I've got three sort of categories of coaches. I've got yes, I'll take one of those. I've got hmm, that's an interesting. Name, uh, I'd like to know more about them. And I bet they could be successful. Maybe also a little bit under the radar, which is where Saban likes to shop. And the no, and not just no, but some of these are hell knows. And not coincidentally, that's the longest list because we got some wackadoos in the Alabama fan base and some of the names they're putting out there. Holy wow. And so the only name that offers where well, there's two names on this list that I sort of thought of. Without having read it anywhere, and now the names are everywhere. But most of this is just an aggregation, and so I'm just comment commenting on you know some of the aggr- aggregate names. The single name that came up first on my list that I would put in the yes category is Jeff Levy, offensive coordinator at Ole Miss. I like him because he's connected to Lane's system, which is connected to Sark system, which is connected to Alabama system, and so the offensive sort of mindset or the offensive system that that he is sort of forming as his own is very similar to what Alabama runs there there are similarities and he might have some tweaks on it some variations but it would it would blend well it would mold well and so I'll put Jeff Levy on the in the yes category and uh, I, I don't think we get him but I would put him in, in a definite yes category for a number of reasons system similarity. Uh, certainly being part of those. Kendall Bryles, I would put in the yes category because I think he's interesting. But he's he's an offensive coordinator that as is his own brand. He runs his dad's offense, and uh, Art Bryles. And I don't think that we would get him because I don't know that he would come in and run the Saban system. He would come he would come in and want to run his system. He might be great to come in and be you know a consultant uh, for part of the summer and let's see if there's uh, pieces that we can incorporate. He would be an exciting offensive coordinator, but but is I don't think someone that Saban would be interested in. Uh, Jeff Longo I think would be a yes candidate, offensive coordinator at uh, uh, North Carolina. Definitely an overmatched out North Carolina team. I thought uh, fared very well last night against AM. Yeah, you know, he runs a lot of RPO, but I think that could be blended into what we're doing. And another yes, you know, sort of home run candidate uh, I would say is uh, Joe Brady. But I don't know. Uh, I like that partly because it would rub it in the uh, in the LSU's face. I think he's young, he's talented, but I think he's sort of building his own thing, and he's in the NFL right now. Not that he couldn't come back after one year, but um, uh, he, you know, NFL one year at LSU, back to the NFL. I I, I don't know that uh, he was with the Saints before he went to LSU, and so I th- I think he wants to be back in the NFL. I think he's probably a couple of years away from being a head coach in the NFL, and so you could reason that he would want to. Uh, maintain that track. Uh, I think it ultimately comes down to does Joe Brady want to be a college coach or a pro coach. And, you know, and if he is, would even be on the list. Cause again, he may have sort of his own brand relative to what we're trying to run. Uh, interesting cat- uh, candidates. I'd need to know a little bit more about uh, these guys, but uh, I, I think they would be interesting candidates. Andrew Sauer, uh, S- Sauer, our Sauer from Kent state, very prolific uh, production at Kent State. I don't know a lot about other than just the, the numbers. I don't know how, how well the systems would would mesh. That's an interesting name I'd like to learn uh, a little bit more about. Uh, Chip Long is a candidate. He's offensive coordinator at Tulane now. Uh, thanks, Doug. And formerly offensive coordinator at, uh, at Notre Dame. He's someone that – he's from Birmingham. He's been on sort of Saban's list uh, the last couple of times. We've looked for an offensive coordinator. Uh, I think they've talked, but they never really, um, you know, landed on – obviously, he's, he hasn't come here. So uh, so that would be an interesting pick. I'd like to know a little bit more uh, about him, but I, th- I think that uh, – I think there's some mutual respect there. Uh, and then an interesting candidate that would be, I think, a little bit below radar is A.J. Uh, Milwey his first year of eligibility was on the Alabama roster. I can't remember where he finished his collegiate career. Uh, he was a, uh, a coordinator, offensive coordinator for five, six years. And I forget where I looked all this stuff up. I'm just not on my mind right now. And then he's been an analyst at Alabama for uh, a number of years. And so he's sort of ingrained in the system. Uh, he was Sark's sort of right-hand man. And so he might be a younger coach. I think he's 35. So he'd be a little bit younger, uh, but he knows the system. He knows the players. Uh, he, could, he could plug in pretty quickly. The only sort of, I don't want to say knock, that's the wrong word, uh, but the only sort of uh, minus on A.J. is that he just left with Butch Jones to go uh, be the offensive coordinator at Arkansas State, and so you might wonder, would Saban pull him back that, that quickly? I don't know the answer to that question, but he might be an interesting uh, candidate to look at. Now, there's a long list of no's, and some of these names, I don't know if people are serious when they say them. If they're not, I, I don't know. But I, I just want to, you know, I just want to kill these things. Uh, these are like bad weeds. And so we just want to kill them before before they take root in someone's mind. And uh, if you if you hear me say no very definitively on these people, if you have a strong opinion the other way, hey, engage me because I love talking football and uh, be interested in what you have to say. Some of these names might even surprise you that I take a a firm, hard, no position on. And right out of the gates, uh, Hugh Freeze. I know that he uh, he came in at one point, uh, a potential analyst job. And I think think the SEC said, can we not do that? I don't think Hugh Freeze would come over as an offensive coordinator. You know, he has his own system. He's going to be sort of that glamour boy offensive coordinator. Oh, by the way, he's a head coach right now. Uh, he's being talked about as potential candidate at other programs as a head coach, and so would he move to be our offensive coordinator. I don't. I don't think that he would. What I think is here. Here would be my prediction on on Hugh Freeze. If there is any talk about Hugh Freeze, he'll play it up, and he'll play it up with with sort of the end game of getting Tennessee to fire Jeremy Pruitt so that he can be offered the Tennessee job. And so if if there's any sort of sticks that rub together to, to create some heat around Hugh Freeze's candidacy, watch for the ripple effect to, 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 to take place there. I think Pruitt would be fired. Hugh Freeze would be hired at the Tennessee head coach. Head coach. And we might actually get Jeremy back as our defensive coordinator next year. That's a whole another rabbit trail. But if there's any, uh, if there's a, a real probability, possibility of getting Jeremy Pruitt back as our defensive coordinator last year, it starts with building energy and excitement around Hugh Freeze as an offensive coordinator. Domino effect there. People are saying Gus Malzahn, on, and I hope they're joking when they say that, but that's a that's a hell no. Um, you know, offense appears to have passed Gus by while he was at Auburn. So I certainly don't want that characteristic from our next offensive coordinator analyst, maybe analyst, maybe, but not as an offensive coordinator. Uh, people are saying major Applewhite. I don't think he's ready. Uh, I know he's been on the, the, he would have a lot of the benefits that AJ Millie has, uh, coached under Saban. He's an analyst under Saban knows the players, knows the, knows the personnel, knows the system. Uh, I think he's down at South Alabama. I just, there's something about, I just don't think he's ready. Um, People are saying Jim McElwain and Doug uh, Nussmeyer. I just think people are just trying to name offensive coordinators uh, that that they know. I don't think it's I don't think it's either of those guys. I've seen someone mention Doug Dooley, uh, who's coaching with the Giants. I don't think that I don't think that happens. Uh, it's Saban and and Dooley have uh, some history. Worked with them at LSU. Uh, liked them. Saban has commented in the past would work with them again, but I don't think that equals him being offensive coordinator. At Alabama, those are two different things. Uh, people are mentioning Todd Herman and, and they're doing that sort of in a cute way. Can we just trade coaches and maybe get a, a draft pick later or something? Um, I think Todd Herman would be now I would consider Todd, uh, Todd Herman, Tom Herman, a legitimate candidate for an analyst position and do the same thing, sort of, that Butch did is rehab uh, your reputation and take the payout from the other you know from the other school while you're making analysts play pay at Alabama and then contribute to the program in that regard. I could see Herman doing that but not moving in as is a day one offensive coordinator I think he's got his way of wanting to do things. I don't think that we would want him to run the offense day one now if he's an analyst for two years and then maybe uh, that's a path to it but certainly not a day one. I would almost predict him becoming an analyst. I've come that close. I feel that strongly about, uh, he would, he would do well if he would, you know, check his ego. I think he could do well as an analyst role, much like, uh, butch did. And let's be honest, Saban's going to be looking for the next butch. And so that could be Herman. People have mentioned Adam Gase. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, again, maybe as an analyst, but I don't think so. And then I'm just going to round these out because these are just laughable. Uh, I've heard people mention Mike Shula and I've heard people uh, or I've seen people mention uh, Freddie Kitchens and I think those are hell no uh, candidates uh, there as well. Uh, again, you know, maybe Kitchens. I mean, Kitchens is uh, I can't remember where he's coaching now. I think where the Giants maybe as an analyst would come back. But I don't think I don't think that's where he wants to go uh, with his career. So I don't think uh, I don't think either of those candidates count. And so, you know, the point is, think about sort of the, the six step program for handling sark leaving and then think realistically about the names and kind of the sexier the name the le- the less likely uh, the candidate is because again we're hiring someone to run the Alabama offense not to run their pet uh, offense and so Kendall Bryles I think is can, can be dynamic but he has his brand he has his offense for that reason, I don't think that he would come in and, and sort of put his program second uh, to Saban's, whereas he could go somewhere else and sort of be the hotshot uh, offensive coordinator running his system. And there's certain additional sort of power that comes with that. So look for an off-the-radar name. Uh, uh, Leopold, uh, it, at, uh, I think that's his name, uh, in Buffalo, that might be an interesting candidate. Uh, Saler uh, And then Millie, to me, those three are probably – uh, three of the more interesting names because I think they fit some of the criteria. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how it plays out. But if you see articles with long lists of names, um, you know, sort of use this as a filtering criteria uh, to evaluate who uh, who should or would or sort of qualifies against the, the saving criteria. All right. That's a long one today, longer than I wanted to do, but a lot of good uh, topics, a lot of good commentary. Don't hesitate to reach out. Some of you do. Uh, Alabama Football Podcast at gmail.com. Go to the website, AlabamaFootballPodcast.com. Uh, uh, there's a contact form there. Uh, we're on the Twitter. We're on the Facebook. Reach out. We love to engage and uh, look forward to engaging with you, uh, with as many of you as <clears throat> as we can. Man, I'm running dry take a seat enjoy a long deep breath uh this next week as we gear up for uh for ohio ohio state and uh, as we compete for the national championship that we kind of hoped and predicted at the beginning of the season so with that i'm gonna run out of here and grab some water and in the meantime you guys know what to do roll tide thanks for listening to the alabama football podcast we love that you're tuned in and hope that you enjoyed the show we encourage you to reach out and let us know what you like, where we can improve, or just a shout out a Roll Tide. We are where you are. iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, email newsletters, T-shirts, free roster downloads, and, of course, on the web at alabamafootballpodcast.com. Check us out where you'll find easy links to your favorite way to follow the Tide. Got that, Coach? Of course. Roll
0: Tide.